Well, good morning, brothers. How are you doing this morning? Good. Great. Good, Super. Good. Good. It's good to uh, to be back with you all and to uh, to talk about some systematic theology. This is a uh, a wonderful blessing. I know to my heart, it really encourages me to be on here with you all. And uh, and so uh, we're we're having just to let everyone know, uh, Mike on his end is having a little uh, problems with his um, signals and all that. So if he um, seems to stutter on his audio or, or maybe uh, freezes. Well, that's the case, but uh, but hopefully the Lord and His providence will be good to us, and uh, we will make it through this without any interruptions. But today we want to look at a very, very uh, pivotal subject, I'll say foundational, and that's, that's covenant theology, and specifically the covenant of works. And this is very important, and, and just sort of to, to pull back before we start looking at, uh, at things more closely, but... I mean, covenant theology. You could you could just give a, a list of reasons why covenant theology is uh, so important. I mean, it's been around uh, shortly after you know with the church fathers in the three hundreds getting you know kind of formulated and nailed down. But the the thing about it is, you really see it come into its own, if we can say it that way, uh, at the time of the Reformation. It is really really hammered out and. Uh, and and it was very important during that time. I mean, during the time of the Catholic debates and the Reformation debates and things like that. And then with Calvin, you see it really uh, get, um, you know, codified. And I think it's important, especially in our day as well. I mean, you think about it just historically, the 19th century, you have dispensationalism rising. And really up to that point, I mean, honestly, that was just a new approach to to understanding um, the Bible, you know, dispensationalism, uh, really in church history, we had not seen uh, uh, a widespread view of, of Scripture in that way. And of course, a dispensationalism arose uh, based upon the understanding that was within the old Schofield reference Bible. And uh, and this, this is classic dispensationalism. A lot of modern dispensationalists have, have moved away from this. I know MacArthur wouldn't hold to this, although he would consider himself a dispensationalist. But but your, your classic dispensationalism, and, and I'm thinking like Charles Ryrie here, uh, they would hold to, to seven different dispensations. And basically what they called a dispensation was it's, it was a, a time period in which God was was testing the obedience of his people in regard to some revelation that he had given at that time. And so uh, Schofield saw that there were seven of those. And and basically what it did is, is it made the Bible to sort of be a disjointed book, whereas covenant theology really comes in and we see the continuity of the covenants that God has given throughout history and, and how they're fulfilled in, in the person and work of Christ. Uh, so, so covenant theology is important for that. I think it's very important for how we read the Bible, but even more important than that, I think related to, um, to, to what we're seeing today with the covenant of works, it comes down to the issue of justification. And again, you think about the debates between the reformers and the Roman Catholics, uh, the issue of imputation, uh, was, uh, was front and center. And at the heart of that question was, uh, well, it was just a rejection of the covenant of works. And the thing is, I mean, the covenant of works refers to that covenant that God made with Adam and Eve 
before the fall. God promised them blessedness. It was continued upon their their obedience to his command. But then after the fall, God continues to promise redemption based on the covenant of grace. And we as Baptists, we would look at, at the covenant of grace as the covenant of grace is promised in the Old Testament, and it is an, an enacted uh, with Christ, with the new covenant. Uh, his death enacts that new covenant, that covenant of grace that is promised uh, all throughout the Old Testament, all the way from Abraham, really all the way from Genesis 3.15. So covenant theology is hugely important, and we're not going to look at all of it right now. We're looking at that one specific aspect of the covenant of works. So, uh, so Mike, let me let me toss it to you. When we're talking about the covenant of works, what are we talking about here? I mean, what is it uh, defined and and, and why is the covenant of works so important to all of redemption, to really all of theology? Why is it so foundational to, to really everything that God is doing in his uh, progress of redemption? Okay, so I'll, uh, I'll start. Uh, by the way, I, I enjoyed uh, reading and, re- and rereading and rereading this chapter, but the to start with a definition, um, let me uh, turn here real quick. He uh, the uh, he started with the definition, and I'll just start with what I like. I refer to as the bottom line up front. Um, so he he, uh, he defines cautiously in his text uh, the uh, the uh, essence of a, co- a covenant is a solemn verbal promise that legally defines a relationship of loyalty. Uh, Covenants also involve other elements, such as a submission to another's lordship, laws to obey, authorization of an office, and representation of, p- of people and observable signs. And uh, with that definition, the uh, he breaks that that definition down. It, it contains two uh, uh, two um, uh, ele- two types of elements. One is the essential elements, and the essential elements is the first part of his definition that he gives, which is a solemn verbal promise that legally defines a relationship of loyalty, loyalty and love, steadfast love is how the, the, the narrative went. That Those are essential. That's the, the essential elements of a covenant. And then he says other common elements, and then he refers to the submission of to another's lordship, uh, laws to obey, authorization of an office, being a representative of a people, and observable signs are, are uh, like, a, like, the, uh, like the rainbow uh, in the, uh, uh, with the uh, covenant he made with uh, Noah. Uh, so that, that's, the, that's the definition he gave. So he breaks them down into essential elements and common elements. And he goes and he gives examples. He, he, he breaks it down and, and defines each one of these. Uh, and uh, so he starts with a uh, the, the solemn promise of verbal uh, instrument to define a, a relationship of loyalty, of love. Um, and he said that this this relationship, I mean, it, it, he breaks it down because it's important to break all the parts down to understand the, the what when you start reading and, and looking uh, in, in, in Scripture to be able to identify a covenant, because in the Bible, especially in Genesis 2, it never uses the word covenant. But yet, when you read it, you can see there, 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 the the wording of Scripture indicates that is a covenant, and that was one of the arguments. And uh, even within the Reformed uh, uh, theology, there's disagreement between different individuals uh, of whether or not this was a, a covenant or not. And I like mm-hmm. the way 
approached it. He start, he, the reason he starts with uh, he starts with the two gentlemen and then he, he refused to respond to their why they, they disagree. And then he says, but that's not enough. You got to look at the definition. You got to look at the essential elements, the common elements, and then look at uh, uh, Genesis 2 in light of, 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 of that, those factors. So a solemn promise uh, is the first part of an essential element. Uh, it's an um, it's a it's 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 can be conditional or unconditional. Um, it can be um, um, a, a promise like uh, he promised uh, to save Noah and never destroy the earth again. Um, it can place uh, man under. Uh, 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 under an obligation, uh, it, it could also be um, where God binds himself to, uh, to well, when God makes a covenant, he also binds himself to others an obligation like, hey, yeah, I'm going to do this, but you, you need to do this. And he pledges to fulfill uh, his obligation. So, uh, but before I get further, I want to stress one thing, and we talked about this in the past. Uh, this is like a good review, I think. Um that uh, with these, with these, these the covenants or covenant, uh, this is something that's that uh, falls in that supernatural category that uh, um, that was talked about. And I one of the previous books we read by Renahan, and uh, it's uh, it's God uh, God uh, initiates this for the good of man. So this is all for the good of man for His creation. Um. So then the next uh, essential element uh, outside the solemn promise is a legal instrument that defines a relationship of loyalty. And he went into a lot of discussion, detailed discussions uh, on this. Uh, uh, but it, he, he, he brought in the, uh, the word and how it's translated. It uh, can be translated as uh, mercy, as kindness, as loving kindness, as goodness, steadfast love. So this this is uh, setting and, and defining a, a a relationship that's that's based on loyalty lo loyalty from one to another or to each other. Um, so it's a binding obligation with the expectation of faithful faithfulness, the, the faithful obedience to 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 adhere to the covenant. Uh, and then the um, those are the uh, the essential elements. So the two a solemn promise and number two a legal instrument where it's defining a a, a re relationship of loyalty of, of love of steadfast love of goodness of kindness. That, that's that's the two essential elements of a um, of a um, covenant. And then he moves into other common elements. And he said these common elements uh, they may not be in all covenants, but they are common. And, and it's sub subordination to another's lordship and. The example is God, you know, God is our, our creator. We are the creature. So that that sets a relationship or it could be between two two uh, individuals where one sets himself under the authority of another um, or a, a nation under another nation or king under another king. Um, and some of the examples he, he gave is, you know, when God took Israel to be his people and asserted himself to be the God. Uh, so, you know, he had God. God uh, asserted the, the nation of Israel underneath underneath him. He is their God. And, and then uh, um, uh, also the, the, there are some human covenants display, display the same theme. Uh, and the example he give, gave was Jonathan and David making a covenant, swearing oaths of steadfast love. There's that, that key phrase, steadfast love, of loyalty, of, 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 of friendship, of love. And then uh, kings and nations made covenants with each other as well. Uh, 
So that 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 was one of the com- another common element. Then another one is laws to obey. You know, conditions. Uh, um, and, and these uh, God's covenant with Noah was uh, uh, through un- although unconditional was made in the context of God's uh, uh, re- re- renewing of man's original obligation in, in the. Um, uh, uh, to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and rule over its uh, creatures. And then uh, the authorization and performance of an office. We see this in the and in, in, in the covenants, and and that's uh, uh, the uh, that could be uh, uh, prophet, priest, king. You know, the, those 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 areas uh, is a, a, an office that can be specified uh, where uh, an individual that's rep- that, that this bleeds into representing a, a, a larger family or a larger group or a nation or, or a kingdom so that that gives uh, again the, the other common essential common element would be uh, you have an office but you also that office oversees a representative of a larger group of individuals and then there's a time a, a sign or a token with this covenant, uh, we see that's also a common element. Uh, tokens or observable signs are not necessarily apparent in all covenants. Uh, but like what I mentioned earlier, Noah, it was the rainbow with uh, uh, Abraham. It was the circumcision of the males. Uh, when uh, the Lord commanded Israel to keep the Sabbath, uh, their, obedience was, their obedience was a sign. Uh, but when we look at... Uh, uh, the covenant with David, it didn't really uh, explicitly identify sign. Uh, so uh, they they come to the conclusion at the end of that discussion on the definition that signs are not essential to covenants. And so then he closes by uh, summarizing again his definition of a, of, a, of a covenant being a solemn verbal promise that legally defines a royal relationship. And they often involve other elements, submission, uh, Laws to obey, authorization of an office, uh, representing a people group, and uh, tokens or signs that that, uh, that that solidify that that are proof uh, that not not proof but uh, show uh, an oath or a promise that that uh, that that covenant will be adhered to by the parties. Mm-hmm. So that that that's the definition of a covenant. And why is why is I think the next part of your question was why is it important. Why is this important? This covenant of works. I think the covenant. I think it's important. And and it, uh, Van, I, I remember we had a discussion with another individual in, in uh, uh, er, earlier in the month. I think it yeah, was. Yeah, I, I was going to bring that up. I was going to bring <laughs> <Yeah>. that up. <laughs> the, the the comment was made. Uh, comment was made during that discussion that oh, covenants. Uh, they're they're not important. They're I, I don't really. Uh, well, I can't remember the exact words, but like I, I, I don't really uh, uh, follow them, or or, or or they're not that important. Words to that effect. Uh, yeah, and then, and, and, I, and by the way, the, the, this is someone outside of our church. We wouldn't necessarily. Yeah. We were having this type of conversation with a church member, someone you know, trying to help them along. We wouldn't necessarily just kind of throw that out there like this, but someone outside of our church who's a teacher of of others. Yeah, but but anyway, I mean, this is important because this said. The, the covenant of works sets the groundwork for the for the for how God reveals himself through redemptive history in the Bible mm-hmm. that we and it's so important because I, it, one that it shows that with the um, with the um, this uh, covenant of works 
that God uh, initiated, and God initiates all the covenants. Again, this is a supernatural thing. It's God. God's adding to uh, this. He chooses to do this for the goodness of man. Uh, it's not anything that we do. But um, this uh, uh, a covenant, and this this work covenant. Uh, Adam was in. I mean, he had a he had a he had a really. Uh, he, his responsibility, when you look at it, to commune with God, and he was put in the garden, and he was to, uh, I think the words were to to work and to keep, which means to to protect. Part of his job was the garden, and it was works based. And even uh, the covenant shows, and when we read the, read the the history of all this, it shows that man cannot, uh, man's work cannot uh, add to. Uh, to uh, to the glory of, uh, cannot uh, add to what who God is or what God what what God is it, it reveals mm-hmm. of Himself uh, and likewise what man does cannot take away from who and what God is uh, but it it it, it shows um, that um, it, it well it, again it goes back to what you said in the introduction Van it it points us to that the uh, the covenant of grace. Uh, uh, that we we can look forward to. I mean, it just it it brings covenants, and this covenant starts it it, it starts that relationship that God has with His creation. Without mm-hmm. without without covenants, uh, uh, God's relationship with us uh, would be just like a, it would be a, a servant's like a servant slave master. We would not get to know God any more than uh, than uh, than what a, a servant knows a master. We would not be friends. We it would be strictly a servant, uh, servant serving his master. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and you know, along those lines, uh, that that's just one of the amazing things about about you know covenants and covenant theology is that you know you take for instance, okay, we got Doctor Marvin Jones with us right here on this podcast. As wonderful as Marvin is, he has zero right, no right whatsoever to expect anything whatsoever from god nothing he he is the creature god is the creator by the way that goes for all of us not just marvin but but by virtue of covenant because god has lovingly condescended to enter into a covenant with man and to essentially bind himself to certain promises that he has made to man well now through covenant dr marvin jones can have expectations of God. We say that, you know, in a, in a proper reverent way, but because of the covenant, Marvin can do it. Marvin can expect that God will fulfill his promises because God has bound himself through covenant to fulfill those promises based upon whatever stipulations are in that certain covenant in scripture. Yeah. And, and to follow on that quickly then, yeah, we, <clears throat> that's not just an old Testament thing, but certainly new Testament and one of Paul's letters to Timothy, he cites that though we are, though we are faithless, God is faithful, and mm-hmm. it appears to be maybe a, a hymn of the early church. Yes, and uh, I I go back um, um, and to uh, I pop I you know I, I think I shared this with y'all uh, previously, but I went back and I pulled out uh, uh, Ranahan's book, The Mystery of Christ. And I, and I think this is a good summary of when we're looking at this with the, this covenant and the, and the covenant of works. And it, it, he summarizes that covenants, therefore, are not natural uh, arrangements. They involve the distribution of benefits, either freely promised or conditioned on some action that otherwise would not be available to the creature, us. 
such as confirmed eternal life, the land of Canaan, kingship over Israel, salvation in the blood of Christ. They include uh, obligations beyond those naturally required, such as the command uh, commands regarding the trees in Eden, the command of circumcision or baptism. Covenants are arrangements provided by God beyond the natural creator-creature relationship. And I, I just, I, I, that, that summarizes the covenants and the, and the purpose and, and, and what they do and, and how they allow us as creatures to have a closer relationship with, with God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Hey, that, that Sam Renahan's book should just be required reading. I mean, it, it was, I think that was the second book we did in our discipleship group. I think the first yeah. one we did was on expository preaching just because, you know, everyone in our church is exposed to it week in and week out. So we wanted to really dig into that. You know, what is expository preaching? Why is it so important? But I think the second book we did was the Renahan book on covenant theology, because honestly, this, this is, uh, as one guy said, covenant theology is the backbone of scripture. This is how you read your Bible. And I would say how you read your Bible correctly. I would agree. Will you got anything to say on, on, uh, on, on this aspect of covenant theology, brother? No, I think you guys covered it all pretty well. I mean, the only, you know, coming from a legal perspective, you see it as a contract. It's often described the covenant as a contract, but a contract is a binding agreement between two parties where both are offering something in exchange. Whereas a covenant here is a little bit different because it's, it's actually God condescending to man and making a promise in legal terms. It would be called what's, what's called a gratuitous promise because there's nothing that's done on our part to justify or to merit the uh, favor of God. Um, so it's a little bit different than a contract in that part. Um, but I, I do really appreciate how we broke down the definition of a covenant and really highlighted that although it's not explicitly stated in Genesis 2 that this is a, a covenant, other parts of scripture, other New Testament yep. writers viewed it as a covenant as evidenced by Paul and Romans. And then I believe it was also Galatians that he had mentioned um, this covenant of works versus the covenant of the law. Yeah. And, and I, faith, excuse me. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, um, yeah, and I think that's why it's so important. With uh, it blew my mind when I understood this in terms of uh, the covenant with Abraham, uh, because again, as a normal part of the uh, covenant ceremony of the Middle, uh, ancient Middle East, uh, uh, both parties, uh, in this case, an animal is separated, and both parties would walk through it. In the case of Abraham's covenant, only God walked between the pieces, which again, mm -hmm. I think that's why indeed the uh, covenant of Abraham, uh, Will, you mentioned Galatians. I mean, that's Paul hammers on that point is that the covenant with Abraham is the overriding covenant, he, even to the covenant of the law with Moses. It's a covenant of promise that God has committed himself to be faithful, even though we are faithless. And it is the and it is I think the ongoing and the oh, and the superintending covenant where all the other covenants with Israel fail. Uh, there's a covenant with the land. You you obey me, I'll bless you. You disobey me, I'll curse you. And again, even though God's patience is long, His forbearance is great. Uh, he does do that, and we see that in the uh, banishment from the uh, land of first the north and then the southern kingdom. 
but yet the covenant with Abraham, and then I would say the covenant of debt with David as well, are the things really uh, that that lead us and, and are the ones we keep our eye on, the covenants of promise uh, leading, leading up to the time of the birth of Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, Will, why don't we move into, uh, so Mike has kind of laid the groundwork with us and he's gone into scripture and he's defined covenant and what is a covenant and, uh, and, and the importance of a covenant brother, would you take us more into the aspects of, of the theology of the covenant? Uh, how do we see, uh, the covenant in systematic theology? How do we see it through the history of the church and historical theology? Yeah. So there's a few things that I thought were very interesting in this chapter. First, it talked about there's an assumption that's being made in modern times that covenant theology um, was more of a recent invention um, and that the Westminster Confession of Faith was kind of there's an assumption being made that the Western Westminster confession of faith was kind of really the beginning of this idea of covenant theology, but that uh, Beaky goes on to kind of dismantle that argument. And on page 289, he says, God's covenant with Adam was a doctrine taught explicitly by Augustine, implicitly affirmed by Lombard, Calvin and Beza and asserted with growing sophistication by other 16th century reformed theologians, such as, Ursinus, Rollock, and Perkins. It was certainly not the invention of 17th century theologians such as the Westminster Divines. Um, and it talked about how that was more of the summary of it all. But uh, for instance, Calvin said that the tree of life given to Adam, like the rainbow given to Noah, was a sacrament and seal of God's covenant. Augustine Uh, even further back, said, for the first covenant which was made with the first man is just this, in the day ye eat thereof ye shall surely die. If Adam had willed to continue, he would have gained the reward of divine blessing. The tree of life was a sacrament and a sign. And that's Augustine all the way back um, towards, gosh, I'm trying to remember where Augustine was. Doesn't really say. Are you talking time frame? Yeah, where Augustine was in the. Oh, he's in, he's in the three hundreds. The three hundreds. Thank you. Uh, so as early as Augustine in the three hundreds, then Cal, like Calvin in the in the Reformation, um, but the term covenant of works was first attributed uh, to the British Reformed theologian Dudley Fenner. So this is not something that's a recent development in terms of the Westminster Confession, but it's something that his the traces of it have been evident throughout the history of the church. Now, when talking about the systemic, systematic, excuse me, I can't talk this morning, the systematic analysis of the covenant of uh, works, another question that's posed is, um, how did the doctrine of God's covenant with Adam develop? No, that's not the one. Explain the distinction between a monoplurian covenant and a diplurion covenant. And what they talk about is there's a difference between two different kinds of covenants mentioned in the Bible. The first kind is between between human beings. And that's kind of what I was talking about earlier with the, the legal contract concept, whereas a covenant was made between two parties. Um, for instance, the, there's a famous example with Boaz and uh, his cousin when he uh, 
he's trying to convince the person who is closer in line to marry Ruth. And that person says, I don't want to. And so they make a covenant there. And Boaz is, an, is able to marry Ruth. That is an example of a, I can't really pronounce that word, dipleuron covenant. But then there's the monopleuron covenant, which is where God condescends to man and makes a promise to man uh, because of things that he has done, not because of anything man has done. And there's that definite distinction here when we see these covenants. Um, any thoughts on that? No, I, I, I think that's right. I think that also engages, uh, again, it, it highlights the the significance of the Abrahamic covenant as well. Yeah, I was going to say that. Uh, it goes right back to what you were saying, Marvin, how uh, God is the one who who establishes the stipulations of the covenant. Exactly. He is the one who enacts the covenant. And then in that covenant, he's the one who who acts as, as the other party to carry right. out the stipulations. He binds himself to the covenant. Yeah, and again, that uh, and in discussions of the atonement, it's a, a point that I think uh, Jonathan Edwards and his successors uh, do in terms of the in terms of the atonement. Um, I don't want to chase that rabbit right now, but it it, it is a and even one of our own Andrew Fuller, uh, particular Baptist theologian talks about the offense against God in his covenant as an infinite offense. Mm -hmm. uh, and so therefore he says that whatever satisfaction is made must be infinite in its, in its extent. And we, we get away from the strict idea of a one-to-one, -one. you know, uh, Christ, uh, pays a full transaction for our sins, but there, it's basically, uh, a, it's basically a balance sheet. Uh, for every one of our sins and thought and deed, Christ pays for that. Whereas the idea there is that the treason is infinite. And so uh, it, it gets into the extent of the atonement. Not that God does not uh, define, uh, not that God does not have a particular people whom he's going to redeem, but that the satisfaction in it is infinite. And it's a, it's an interesting way of, of thinking about it. And, I think at some point probably we'll we'll get into that in our discussions, and it's, uh, in some cases a rather controversial one as well. So uh, there's a the way the reformers looked at this covenant with Adam as as a covenant was because even though it's not explicit, they they said that it was an implicit revelation of a covenant with Adam. The threat of death for violating God's prohibition logically implies the promise of life for observing his law, which is the principle of do this and live seen throughout the scriptures. And another hermeneutical principle that is laced throughout this chapter is this idea of we can interpret the Bible, but a good way to interpret the Bible is to see how later people in scripture interpreted the Bible, right? Scripture, this this principle yeah. of scripture interpreting scripture. Right. And I, I loved what he did here in Hosea. He quoted Hosea 6, 7, which is best translated as this in relation to what Adam did in, in breaking the covenant was as Adam transgressed the covenant or when they're accusing the people of Israel in Hosea's time of transgressing the covenant like Adam as is evident when compared to Job 31, 33, covered my transgressions as Adam. 
Uh, additionally, Paul in Romans 3.27 uh, also indicated the covenant of works with Adam. He contrasts the law of works and the law of faith as two different ways of justification. Paul says the commandment was ordained to life, Romans 7.10, and as such it must have been given first to man in his original sinless state. Uh, and this is an important point too, and I'm not sure I, if Mike covered this in, in the last chapter, but each covenant that you see throughout scripture um, deals with a with a federal head, not just with one particular man, but with one particular man as a, represent, a representative of a people group or of mankind in total. And they say here in on page 293, children are not guilty of their parents' sins, but Adam's sin brought condemnation on mankind, which is in Romans 5 which implies that God made a special legal arrangement with Adam. All of these scriptures evidence that scripture, later scripture, interprets what happened in Genesis 2 as a covenant with Adam. So for those reasons, it's appropriate to look at this as a covenant. Um, and it's called the covenant of works because its condition was obedience to God's command. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. I, I like also on page six, 294, he had a summary of the first covenant. The Lord God freely made a covenant with Adam as the federal representative of all his natural descendants in which God threatened death for disobedience, but promised eternal life for perfect obedience, according to the visible signs of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Um, and I think it's important here that when we when we look at this, it sounds like God is at first glance, God is being kind of harsh, right? Like you, you do this and you're going to die. But what that does is it ignores all of the things that came before that. God created man in his image. God created the heavens and the earth, created this beautiful garden. Everything was perfect. He created Adam differently than we are created now because we were created in sin. But Adam was created before the fall. So Adam had the perfect ability to obey God's command. And so God had blessed Adam with all of these things. And he said, you can have anything you want. You can eat anything. You can, you have full dominion over this place, but this one thing you cannot do. And so it's, it's important not to see this as a cold legal instrument, but as, as a heavenly father who loves his children who's gifted them with everything has just one condition hmm. and that condition is eventually broken. Um, any thoughts? Yeah. Well, I, I think you're exactly right. The, the whole thing, uh, you know, the whole covenant is, is a covenant that is made in love. And, yeah. uh, and, and I think Vicky even points this out that the, the, the command is not overly stringent. It's not overly, hard i mean it was very much an easy command to keep uh it's not like god did you know all the other trees in the garden all the other you know things to eat in the garden were, were horrible bad ugly you know withered all those things no it, it was an absolutely beautiful garden and yet there was one tree he says of that one you know do not eat and it was just the uh uh the way to test the fidelity of Adam, you know, there, uh, the, there were no banks in the garden of Eden. So you can't say, well, don't go rob a bank. Don't go do this. Don't go do that. You know, 
it, it's narrowed down to this one command and it, it's, it's a gracious command. It, it's it, like Mickey says in general, I don't think he uses these words, but it's an easy command to keep. If your love and fidelity and your allegiance is to the Lord first. Right. Yeah. And I think, I, I think also, uh, uh, that's good, but I, I think also we see this in, in in the aspect of our own humanity as well in terms of our desires. Uh, mm. We see this in our own children <laughs> and ourselves, for that matter. Uh, we have we we have everything in the world that we well within our world that we supply them, uh, except for this one thing, and, and we set the boundary there. Well, they're drawn to that one thing. Uh, as well as we, I mean, and that, I think it's, it discloses indeed the, the very nature of a corrupted desire uh, in the sense that we're never satisfied. Uh, whereas again, God creates us to be fully satisfied, but to be fully satisfied in him. And from that, all other things will come. Uh, he'll supply all the other things just as he did for Adam. If Adam had continued perfectly to obey him, he would have had anything he wanted. Uh, and so it is as well in Christ that that's what's restored us as well, that in Christ, uh, uh, we have freedom and, uh, we, we have a, an abundance of things that are provided for us from, from God's good creation. And when you say that Adam would have had anything he wanted, he would have wanted only the things that would have. Exactly. Glorified God and been in obedience. To, right. Yeah. To God. And which, which again would have been, uh, would have been a, a pure, a pure will as he had, mm-hmm. uh, that was uncorrupted by, by a bad choice. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so they, they go on then to discuss this difference between the covenant of works and the law, but they talk about this concept of the natural moral law and this idea of a covenant and they say that the the covenant was a positive law it was something that wasn't inherently good or evil until god said you shall not do this but the that's different than the natural moral law the natural moral law is that law grounded in god's nature and inherent in human nature um, in Romans 2, 14 through 15, they talk about where the Apostle Paul says that the Gentiles, which have not the law, that is, they lack the written word of God, still by nature follow some of its precepts because of the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. And that is an idea that every person has God's moral law written on their hearts. We were created with this natural moral law. Even um, legal scholars uh, have acknowledged that um, uh, William Blackstone, for instance, Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England uh, posited this idea of this natural law that all men are inherently given this idea of of morality, this sense of right and wrong. For instance, um, there's two different kinds of law in our legal system. There's there's laws that are mala inse and laws that are mala prohibitum. Laws that are mala inse are those natural moral laws, for instance, like murder, robbery, theft. Um, those kinds of things are inherently wrong that have been wrong across all societies. But then you have laws that are prohibitively wrong, and those are things like um, speeding, um, things like 
open carry versus concealed carry laws. Those are those are prohibitive laws that aren't inherently good or evil, but are they're prohibited simply because there's a law. And here we have this distinction between the moral law and a covenant. A covenant arises not from something that is inherent with with man or that's part of human nature or God's nature, but is a it arises from God's love. Um, and he freely promises to reward it for obedience. God wrote natural law in the human heart by creation, but he made the covenant by his word and science. So I thought that was a very interesting distinction between what a covenant was, especially a covenant of law placed under the requirement of perfect and perpetual obedience, and this idea of um, this natural moral law, especially when you come, you carry it full force. Adam was told one thing, you shall not eat of this tree. But that particular covenant doesn't really apply to us today because there's, I don't know of a tree that has this knowledge of good or evil or a tree of life that we can partake of. But, and that's the same with Abraham. There's this covenant that's signed with uh, the, the circumcision and and with Moses, there's these ritual laws that were put in place um, later on with the people. But those those covenants are no longer applicable now because they were fulfilled in Christ. And now we are under this covenant of grace. However, the natural and moral laws that were implicit in humanity from the beginning are still applicable today. I think that's a helpful yeah. framework to look and see especially through the lens of covenant theology, how right. the natural moral law still applies to us today. Well, would you say, would you say that the uh, laws, and again, I love the Latin. We, we always love throwing the Latin in. Yeah, very, very nice. You, you get, uh, you get a nine from the Russian judge on that one. Uh, but um, the prohibited laws in their best sense, they're prohibited for the common good, right? In other words, when a legislature enacts a law, it supposedly is for the common good. Yes, and, and I, I think also we see that in the scripture as well in the in the uh, in the in the laws of of uh, the covenant laws in Israel as well. I mean, the huge compendium of civil, hygienic, moral, uh, with the moral laws thrown into that. Uh, and uh, again, we we see that uh, as the boundaries uh, for a well-functioning society while at the same time it's distinctive of its neighbors they have nothing like that but i i think well i think that's a great distinction in the fact that uh whenever people start picking at this you have the moral law in with the ceremonial and the the, the civic law and, and 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 those kind of things uh and they all just want to paint it with one stroke and say well you know uh uh, laws, laws, uh, laws prohibiting uh, male uh, sexual relationships with other males is the same thing as uh, combining linen and polyester or whatever. I don't know. You know you're mixing your things where where we get a confusion of categories there, don't we? Right. It, it, yeah. Go ahead. Well, please. Yeah. The, and it's it's a it's a common trope that people who are semi biblically literate who are not believers like to use that idea and they, they'll throw in these regulatory laws that were given yeah. to the nation of Israel as if they were the same on the same level as moral laws. Exactly. Yeah. And it's that it's a total.
total disregard for the distinction between something that is mala in se and mala prohibitum. Um, oh, and it, and yeah. also, scripture doesn't actually say if you combine a garment with two different kinds of thread, you shall be put to death. Correct. That's not anywhere in there. Or if you plant two different crops alongside one another, you will be put to death. And so I think that's an important distinction, too, that people like to overlook. Um, and there's actually there's a, a show called The West Wing that aired in the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. And the president of the United States and that show was was a uh, Catholic and, and well-read and uh, scripture and he challenged this conservative one time with that same kind of trope you know basically illustrating you know the hypocrisy of um being um of of using this this idea that man shall not lie with man as he does with the woman and uh it's a total misrepresentation of yeah. what scripture actually says yeah it's right yeah one one is a uh, one is a uh, one is a uh, uh, it's it's bound by by time and by location. Uh, the other the, the other in terms of uh, ordering a society. Uh, Paul ultimately says for the purpose of bringing forth the Savior. I mean, and my father-in-law is really big on that. He says, well, the reason why Israel was saved all those years and kept is because they were the ones through whom the Messiah would, would come. And, and I and I I agree with that. Uh, but again, uh, we, we see that in Jesus whenever, uh, whenever basically he gets these challenges to the law and, and so forth. And Pete and the Pharisees are strict, strict lawyers in that sense. Uh, they, they try to trip him up in that. Uh, but again, I mean, what we have there is the introduction of the law of love. Uh, and, and I think that's the distinction here. Not that the moral law is not important. Uh, indeed, again, uh, Jesus died for the offenses to the moral laws, our offenses to the moral laws, not for his own, of course, because he had none. Um, but for, uh, but, uh, but for, uh, 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 and as a result, then, uh, uh, our impetus in the obedience to the law uh, is not to the Torah; uh, it is to Christ Himself and the law of love. Uh, to whereas then, uh, if we will, if we will love Him and obey Him, then again we we find ourselves in a right relationship to the to the law in that regard. Yeah, yeah. To, so, to me, the, the the most glaring uh, example of this uh, of, of all that you guys are saying is uh I, I think it's in acts uh chapter 10 i, I should look this up while, while y'all were talking i was thinking about it. i should have looked it up yeah you're you dark are. man we wouldn't even seen you done it <laughs> <laughs> i know i know but uh uh yeah that, that that's the account where peter you know is hungry and uh and he sees a vision of the sheet let down and in oh, essence yeah, yeah. what you have there is you have god commanding peter to break one of God's commandments, you yeah. know, the commandments have been, you know, you have these certain food laws that you have to, uh, abide by, which again, we would make the distinction that was within the, uh, the, the ceremonial aspect of the law, but nonetheless, it was a law. It was a positive law God gave. Uh, but yet in this command, he gives to Peter. And he basically says, if I, if I'm remembering the wording, right. I mean, he said, he says, get up and, and kill it and eat it. Yeah. Arise, yeah. kill, eat. As King yeah. James says, I've, I've yeah. got that. On, okay. I've got that emblazoned on one of my cups here. 
There you go. And then Peter's reaction to him is, is basically no way. I think he says like, surely not, or something like that. And then he talks about, you know, I've never done that in my life. I've never, you know, broken that law. I've never been unclean. And, uh, and, and then the Lord says, Hey, don't call something unclean that I've made clean. But the thing is that through all these years under the Mosaic covenant, uh, that has been an unclean thing to do. So here you see God, in essence, rescinding a law that he had given. And the only exactly. way he can do that, and we say this reverently, the only way he could do that is because that law is a positive law. He could never do that, as it were, with a moral law. He could never rescind uh, one of the moral laws that is a reflection of his standard of righteousness. Exactly. Right, exactly. Um, and just to end with, there's this, the last section, again, Beaky always does this with each chapter. He takes it from the theoretical, the academic, and brings it into the personal. And I like this summary here, the covenant of works and the glory of God. On page 301, it says, God's covenant with Adam made known his glory to man in a marvelous manner. Reformed mm-hmm. Orthodox theologians taught that it revealed God's attributes in general. It demonstrated God's infinite condescension and that he entered a covenant with a mere creature over whom he had absolute sovereignty and authority. It showed his generous goodness in that he dwelt with man as a covenant partner and offered a promise of life to one to whom God owed nothing. Its easy command encouraged man to view God's absolute sovereignty as sweet and moderate. The covenant manifested God's wisdom in treating his rational creation in a manner designed to draw out man's free and willing service by a reasonable law and a remarkable reward. God's making man in goodness and holiness and guarding him against temptation by such a sobering law made known God's own goodness and holiness. The terrible threat of the law also prepared the way to demonstrate God's justice in punishing sin. God's righteous retribution was highlighted by the ingratitude of man's sin. For in breaking such a covenant, man despised God's goodness. Its condition of obedience was well suited to display how easily the best creature can change and fall away apart from constant dependence on its creator. Conversely, its unbreakable words proved God's unchanging faithfulness to do what he promised. Lastly, the covenant of works prepared the way for the revelation of God's grace in Christ, according to his eternal purpose to exalt man higher than Adam ever stood, and all for the glory of God. Mm. Amen. Mm. Amen. Well, uh, Mike, you got any comments on this? Anything on the historical uh, or the theological aspect of it before we toss it over to Marvin? Because we want to wrap it up with Marvin giving the uh, the uh, the implications of this, the fallout of this. Uh, well, why does this all matter? You know, so we want to hear that from Marvin. But uh, but before we move on, Mike, any any comments you have? No, the, well, the, I have one comment with the with the with the covenants, and we we talk about their their importance, uh, and uh, and I, I I second everything that has been said, but it, the covenants uh, it, it goes back to it shows our obedient uh, uh, the, the obedience uh, stands out that we need to be obedient, but it shows our dependency upon God because I mean mm-hmm. uh, I think it, obedience and dependency are two key words that that uh, uh, that come out through all these readings of these chapters that I, that I, that I, that I, that I, 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 you know, that was reinforced throughout there is, you know, obedience to the covenants. Uh, 
uh, in uh, dependency upon God. I mean, because that, that's that's what it's about. Our our full dependency upon God, our obedience and dependency on Him is is the Creator, and that's the creature. Amen, brother. Well said. All right, Marvin. Practical implications. What? How, how does this affect you, Marvin? You're living here in 2023. <laughs> you know, right here in the glorious got, Matthews courthouse. That's right. We got all this crazy stuff going on in the world. What? What differences does the covenant of works make in your life? Well, it certainly ties together um, all the things that the two other uh, chapters and the insights we've had. But I, I think this this uh, this chapter deals with uh, what recently, I mean, uh, you and Mike, we've been dealing with in an after action report. Uh, we had that recently with our event with our, our brothers in Kenya. But mm -hmm. I think that basically this chapter is an after action report with uh, on the covenant on the covenant of works. That is. Uh, we know that it's there. Uh, we know that it was transgressed. We know the penalty of it. How effective, uh, uh, what, what effectively do we learn from that? Even in our breaking in and our disobedience, what positive, uh, what positive uh, insights or what positive truths can we gain from that? And I like the way he's broken this down. Um, uh, he, he says the covenant of works reveals the covenant Lord. Uh, and he does that in four in four different ways. Uh, he, in other words, what he's saying there is that the covenant of works as given to us, uh, even though we transgressed, it re it reveals it reveals to us uh, in that in that covenant itself. It reveals to us first of all uh, that our covenant God is the Lord of life, and that is that um, uh, he says as a result of that. Uh, that we have that we should draw from that uh, in seeing it uh, and seeing it broken afterwards uh, is not to despair of the fact uh, that we lie completely that we lie completely under judgment even though even though we do but he says uh, on uh, 307 he says we should therefore admire admire God's abundant generosity uh, when we're attempted to uh, doubt God's goodness in the wilderness of this world let us remember that he originally put man in paradise. Uh, and, and I, I think, I think that's a, a very important insight for us in the sense that, uh, it, it, what we see here is paradise lost. In other words, mm -hmm. what we, what the Bible re records for us here is what we lost, but what, what also by covenant, God is determined to regain. Uh, and that really is the story of redemption is, um, uh, is the garden that is lost, man is now in a fallen state, is still under an obligation to superintend and to uh, be stewards of the creation that God has given him, even though uh, even though the creation has been cursed uh, and it makes man difficult to do that, it still is imperative upon us to continue to do that uh, with a view towards the fact that, that um, at one day, uh, with those who in Christ, uh, who, in, who, who are in Christ and one day whenever he returns, uh, and, uh, and all of history is ended at that point, uh, then of course we'll be reunited with Christ in our glorified bodies, but then the, the heavens and the earth will be remade 
and then we'll then have the reinstitution without sin and without temptation of all that Adam had and Adam lost. Mm-hmm. So it really is a glorious story of on one end paradise on one end, uh, uh, a bunch of muddled, a bunch of muddled things with God being faithful in all these things, and uh, still by His law, by His forbearance and His patience, uh, enduring us and bringing us to bringing us into Christ uh, and adopting us as His children, with a view towards the fullness of our redemption. Our redemption then being our being made completely into the image of God. And then in the end, when all things are brought together, then uh, we have the the restoration of, of paradise. Uh, except at that point, then we will not be under a period of probation. Basically, we've already we've already been under probation. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Christ, Christ, uh, Christ is the one who fulfilled the law on our behalf. Christ is the one who gained a righteousness and imputed it to us. Christ is the one who is the surety and guarantee uh, of our redemption and of and of and of the fact that what God has planned in the restoration of paradise will indeed be so. And that is the that's the ultimate. Uh, that's the ultimate story of the covenants is if God has made it and said it so, it's going to be so. Mm-hmm. Not that we understand all the particulars of it, but in this chapter, I think what he's saying is that as we look at that, what is what can we draw about God from that and what are our responsibilities from that? Do we still have, I mean, uh, it, it is the mandate to uh, to multiply and repent and subdue the earth, is, is, is that still upon us? Certainly it is. Uh, but in this way, he secondly, not only says he's the Lord of life, he's the Lord of our location, which he means by that. He says, uh, in the second paragraph there at the bottom of the page, therefore the covenant teaches us to submit, uh, to God's providential vocation. In other words, there's this idea here being the Lord of our location is that wherever God has placed us now, we are, we are under, we are under, as he says, uh, a providential vocation. Uh, even in this life, uh, even even though we've we're in a fallen state, but yet Christ has redeemed us. Uh, he has placed us into the, in, into our places and given us a calling, not only an effectual and holy calling to salvation, but also a calling in our particular area to uh, of the of the creation mandate uh, to uh, uh, in, in our employment uh, to uh, to to take uh, to take matters. Uh, uh, of a of a simple job or of, of a simple task or something like that, and as Paul says, do all things to the glory of God. Do it as if you're doing it unto Christ. And at that point, then it it, it changes the whole dynamic of this is to understand uh, that in Christ, not only do we have a holy calling, uh, certainly in our salvation and our redemption, but we also have a holy calling, really, uh, to have dominion over our particular areas of responsibility. Uh, and that God and that and that uh, work is and that work, uh, even though it's been it, it's fallen under the curse, it still is a sacred obligation. And it is still something that God requires of us uh, and that God is in the process by his grace of aiding us. And the third thing he says, then, is the, uh, the covenant of works reveals the, the, the law, uh, the Lord of our law. And that, will this kind of goes along with what you were saying as well in your chapter. Um, he, he, he says, um, uh, the covenant teaches us that we must obey God's authoritative commands. Um, and then he says in the next paragraph, the covenant's promises and threats also impose upon us the obligation to believe God's faithful word. So in other words, um, 
there is a law, there is a binding law upon all of us, as we've seen, um, that uh, that is to be obeyed. Uh, it is not it is not overridden. It is not subjugated uh, in Christ. Christ came to fulfill to the utmost jot and tittle of the law, which he did. Uh, but in that place, and we still we still are under a law. Uh, and then he, he says here that we must understand that God's commands are authoritative uh, in our particular areas of dominion, uh, in our in our families, as we try to uh, form our families in a way uh, that would that would honor God. And all these things, there is a there is a, a law that um, that controls that. And the fourth thing he says here is that uh, he is the Lord of our love. We see this on page three hundred nine. He says, fourth, the covenant of works reveals God to be the Lord of our love. It's no accident that the record of God's covenantal word immediately proceeds to describe the institution of the marriage covenant. Uh, the covenant was a uh, uh, was a word of betrothal and a manner of speaking. For in it, the Lord God offered himself to be wedded forever to man in righteousness and love. Uh, and I, I found this to be extremely helpful in the sense that this is uh, this is certainly, uh, in addition to describing the church as the body of Christ, uh, uh, an equally compelling and frequent allusion in the New Testament is that uh, is that the church is the bride of Christ, and and he uses the he uses the analogy of the most intimate human relationship that people can have the uh, the union of a man and a woman in marriage, and he he says then that that is that, that that is the paradigm, that that is the example for us in terms of how God sees us. He sees us not as lawbreakers whom he's just covered, but he sees us with with an eternal affection uh, that in its purest form we exhibit in our own marriages, but which he being faithful and being and being trustworthy and being a covenant God who keeps his promises uh, of he who is jealous of his bride and as such then any man who's jealous of his bride then will will carefully will carefully guard her uh and will protect her to the point of not only her fidelity in the relationship of 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 marriage but also it's the ultimate sign of love as well is that he will not allow her or he does not desire for her to step to step outside the bear the boundaries of their betrothal and so it is God as well. I mean, that's the uh, that is a. I think Beaky does a great point of pointing out the fact that that's a, a powerful image uh, of the covenant of works um, mm-hmm. uh, for us as well. Is to see this is not all just law. Uh, this is not all just a matter of you know black and white. Right. Uh, it, it's a ma- it's a personal thing with him, uh, and we see this of course in the in the covenant in the prophets as well. We see it most supremely. Uh, in Hosea, but we see it also in the other in the other prophets as well. In this idea that even with a disobedient and rebellious uh, nation that God planted uh, uh, as uh, as a vineyard in 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 the wilderness, uh, so it is also that He's jealous for her as well, and will do everything for her benefit up to and certainly and certainly including. Uh, the giving of his own son to love her, to call her, to draw her, uh, to redeem her, uh, and to perfect her. And I think it's a, I think it's a powerful image there as well. Um, 
and, and then one other thing very quickly, and then I, I know we're trying to, uh, uh, he said, he, he then talks about the covenant of works engages the covenant service, uh, um, uh, servant. Uh, and then he talks about this in three aspects, uh, how even in this world, uh, being, uh, being redeemed, uh, being, uh, uh, being uh, saved in Christ and and having that holy calling, he says, there still are three responsibilities that were given to Adam, which he fell in his responsibility to observe, but which we uh, see as they were reflected failingly by Adam in the covenant of works. So they are so they are on us still, uh, even though Adam fell, there is still on us. But yet in Christ, there's the possibility of doing these, uh, doing these in a way that pleases Him. That's the prophetic servant. That is, uh, that uh, we are that we are called upon to proclaim the Word of God. Uh, that is, that the Word of God is is uh, uh, is pure. It's it's lovely to us. Uh, it is that by which uh, we by which our feet our feet and our path are guided, and so it is there that we are. Uh, that we are uh, called upon not only uh, to keep his law, but also to proclaim it. Uh, I think the most long and extended uh, 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 affirmation of this, and I think deliberately so, is Psalm 119, uh, where every stanza, it's acrostic, but in every standard, uh, every stanza there has a reference to the law, the the precept, uh, the, the, the word of God. And so then that is our calling as well. He says, uh, uh we are uh, also, uh, engaged to be, uh, priests, uh, priestly servant. Uh, again, as we said, that's our vocation, even, even in our fallen state and as redeemed in Christ, that is still, that is still our, uh, that is still our goal is to, uh, take dominion of our particular areas, uh, and to, uh, offer them and offer them to God for his service, uh, with a, with a view towards, uh, with a view towards a day in which, you know, that would be redeemed. But more particularly, he says that it also brings upon us as we see the failure of Adam, it brings us priests. It brings upon us the responsibility, uh, for a right worship of God, uh, to see that, uh, in, uh, in Adam, not only was, not only was that covenant broken, and the law uh, infinitely offended, uh, but also uh, that uh, we still have a God who is to uh, who is to be worshipped, and it is our responsibility. Uh, and I love the way he says this uh, in the last paragraph under that section. This is on three thirteen. He says a corollary to this duty is our responsibility to, to keep God's worship holy. Um, God called Adam to keep or guard the garden. And I, I think that's a theme that runs through all this. He called him to keep or guard the garden. And priests had to distinguish between holy and holy and between unclean and clean so that nothing unclean would pollute God's worship. And he says, so that is our responsibility as well. We are to guard the garden, so to speak, uh, even though we don't have paradise restored at this point. Yet within our local congregations, within our, our local churches, uh, this is our garden. This is what we are what we are called to tend, and our first and primary obligation is to worship God and to worship Him rightly. Uh, and so, in that sense, we are still servants to uh, to uh, to uh, uh, continue and to maintain uh, uh, the worship of God. And finally, he says, the kingly servant. 
that uh, God's covenant with Adam engaged him to be God's kingly servant. God commanded Adam and Eve to exercise dominion over the earth. Uh, in the covenantal context of Genesis 2, we find Adam already beginning that work before Eve's creation when God appointed him to work the garden and brought the animals to him to receive their names. Um, and and so we see here that um, Beaky concludes in the last paragraph in that section. However, we must remember that man is not the supreme king, but a servant king under the Lord of hosts. In other words, we still are called to dominion, but we are called to dominion uh, not as a supreme king of our domain, uh, but as a servant king under the Lord of Lords, uh, so that the covenant of work still puts upon us a responsibility uh, to uh, uh, to replenish and subdue the earth and to and to and to uh, fill the earth uh, through. Uh, through procreation and so it is there that in doing that we see then that we are uh, as he says here the uh, the uh, the hopefully the faith the faithful servants of god and that well there are other parts here that we could go through but i see that we're out of time so uh, i'll open it up for discussion there i guess the way i find him uh amazing i just I, i'm not don't know if amazing is the right word but uh that i reflect on is uh to guard and to keep or to 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 keep to uh, to keep and to protect uh, the, those words and so you know the unholy and the holy so again i, I just, it's more of a rhetorical question but i always ask myself yes so you know adam failed in uh distinguishing between the unholy and holy as far as the serpent uh, but then, and uh, I like what he says uh, on your section, Marv, that you talked about um, back on page 308, that the uh, that their man encountered the servant with, with its temptation. God did not ordain these things out of evil intent, but because man needed to grow to maturity as God's royal son. And, and so, you know, it was God preparing, you know, his Adam is, you know, his uh, royal son. He's preparing him. To, to carry out his roles and responsibilities as a royal son. And so he was tested and he failed the yeah. test. <laughs> well, he also makes the point that Christ was tested as well. I yeah. mean, we see that in the real temptations. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews says he learned obedience through the, through, through the things he suffered. In yeah. other words, there's the active uh, idea of learn there in the sense that, uh, in the sense that he's also, uh, that he is also in that period of testing, so to speak. Um, he was tested in, uh, matter of fact, Paul tells the Corinthians, he's tested in every way that we are yet without sin. Yeah. Yeah. Will, any comments on any of these practical aspects? Nope. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, brothers, we will bring this conclusion to a close. It, it is so rich. I mean, the, the whole subject of covenant theology. There's so many aspects to it. And I think one thing we do need to say, going back to, uh, to where we started from with, uh, with Mike's chapter is, is Mike's chapter started off with those who would, uh, hold sort of a different view, you know, that they would hold that, that in Genesis, we don't see a covenant of works there. And, uh, and, and, some of those guys are heavy hitters in a reformed world. I mean, you've got John Murray, you got Anthony Hokema. And so, you know, all that just to say is, is you, uh, 
you know, there, there's this aspect that you can hold, you know, covenant the theology is not monolithic, even among reformed Baptists, as we've hold to uh, a different form of covenant theology than our Presbyterian brothers would hold to even within reformed Baptist covenant theology. Uh, there are different nuances. There are different things that are emphasized. And so uh, again, it's not just a, a monolithic thing that here it is, and you have to fit exactly into this mold. Now there, there are bounds there. And obviously you, with like with, any doctrinal matter you can go out of bounds but but within it you know you can uh have by conviction different nuances and different things that you hold to there so i just want to kind of wanted to 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 bring that out as well and then uh and then i just want to wrap us up with a quote uh charles spurgeon i was reading in his um his sermon he's got a sermon titled the wondrous covenant and he said this he said the doctrine of the divine covenant lies at the root of all true theology. It reminds me, like you said, Mike, of the conversation we had with that individual where uh, he was saying, you know, dispensationalism, covenant theology, and none of these are, are really important. Well, I mean, they are important. I mean, there, there are ways that you read the Bible, sort of a, a, a grid that you feel the Bible puts on itself to read it and understand it properly. And, and again, we would hold that that covenant theology is the correct way to understand that. But that being the case, so Spurgeon says, the doctrine of the divine covenant lies at the root of all true theology. It has been said that he who well understands the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace is a master in divinity. Uh, I think we can say I, amen I, to that. That is, right? so, that is so well said. Yeah, just just like Spurgeon, right? Spurgeon esque. Yeah. Spurgeon, <laughs> Spur- Spurgeon is so Spurgeon esque, right? Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, Mike, would you mind closing us in prayer, brother? Sure, we'll do. Okay. Father, thank you for uh, just uh, this time that uh, this morning that we spent together uh, discussing uh, the, the covenant of works, Lord. Lord, I thank you for these 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 Christian brothers of mine, Lord. I thank you for their 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 loyalty, love, and dedication uh, to commit to the time to study and to to uh, participate in, in this podcast, Lord. But I pray that our discussions have been uh, have been edifying to each of us, Lord. And for those that are listening, uh, that will listen, Lord, I, I pray that it would be edifying and uplifting as well. Lord, it's always good to 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 talk about theology and look into this stuff, Lord. But we know that your your word is the authority, that, and that. These discussions uh, complement uh, uh, your word, but your word, uh, your scripture is the truth, and we need to be using scripture to 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 uh, to interpret scripture, Lord. And uh, we thank you for that. We thank you for uh, the gifting of great authors who write books like this that can stimulate thought and discussion, Lord. Lord, continue to uh, watch over and protect us, guide us, give us discernment, give us direction in our, our daily walk. For it's in your name, I pray, Amen.